0: Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. And welcome to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss. We're going to be talking with a gentleman from the great, Ohio State University. I'm sure you folks have heard that name. Great school in the Midwest in Ohio. Uh, I happen to be a Wisconsin Badger fan, and we usually get our tail beat by the Ohio State Buckeyes. So <laughs> we won't bring up football in this conversation, I hope. Except, Except Lou, Tim, um,
1: that didn't happen last night in basketball. <laughs> yeah, <well.
0: laughs> Yeah, occasionally we get you someplace in some sport. I don't know if it's underwater field hockey or how we have to beat you. (laughs)
2: Um,
0: Lou, this looks to be a good show. Uh, We appreciate it because, as you and I have been discussing, uh, the Ohio State University has the Ohio Manufacturing Institute as part of it in the School of Engineering and in the College of Engineering, and they're going to be working with us on Manufacturing Talk Radio.
2: Well, that's excellent, and, uh, you know, I'm looking at uh, Ned's uh, long bio here uh, that almost takes a quarter of a page of everything he's uh, said, done, or going to do. So, uh, Ned, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, And, and I am an academic. Those things are written to be weighed, never to be read. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Let me just uh, give you a quick intro here. Uh, uh, Ed we, Edward goes by Ned Hill, professor of economic development at the Ohio State University's John Glenn College of Public Affairs. And the section on city and regional planning, and this is the important part to us because we're very excited to be working with them, He is also a member of the College of Engineering's Ohio Manufacturing Institute. And, Ned, that's kind of how we got introduced was through OMI or OMI.
1: Well, that's terrific. I'm glad you guys um, found us. And we're we're looking forward to a long relationship with you two folks.
0: As we. You you know, we have uh, interfaced with the New Jersey uh, Manufacturers Extension Partnership and a couple of others around the country. Can you give us or our listeners kind of a quick overview of OMI?
1: Well, the Ohio Manufacturing Institute is -hmm. uh, is not part of the uh, Manufacturing Extension Partnership. We have a close working relationship with Ohio's program, uh, but we're a think tank within Ohio State University itself, and um, we work on technology issues and workforce issues that are important to the state's manufacturers.
0: And consistent with a jobs report that just came out in February of 20,000, which was 160,000 shy of what the prognosticators thought it might be, Mm -hmm. there's this whole discussion around the skills
1: gap. How is uh, Ohio State addressing that, Ned? Well, we, we do it in a few different ways. The most important way we deal with skills gap, of course, is uh, through th- our training of engineers, and we can't forget that the business schools play a very big role about, in terms of running and managing uh, comp- global competitive companies. Um, then when it comes to the operations technology, engineering is here has a very strong um, attachment to a number of, of, of big manufacturing companies, but also their supply chain. And then through OMI, we're doing two things. The first is we work very closely with our community colleges as well as Ohio State's regional campuses um, in, in, in terms of identifying where the future of workforce is going. Right now, the community colleges, the tech schools, they're actually doing a very good job turning out as many people as their facilities can in traditional skilled manufacturing occupations. Um, you know, we'd like to see it faster. Um, And our partners, the Ohio Manufacturers Association, that's the NAM affiliate, has put together a grassroots, um, manufacturer-led sector strategy dealing with with more of the traditional blue-collar skills. And uh, we spent, oh, goodness, two, three years working with them, helped get that off the ground. And now our focus has really shifted to rethinking and reimagining what – the engineering technologist is because our concern is with the digital factory or um, the next generation of operations technologies the ability to engineers handle that and also to to lead workforce teams around the shop floor itself we think is very is weak and it's a huge competitive vulnerability for the United States
0: hmm interesting I I notice in your but but uh, then you have got
1: the specific oh, thing. What are we doing with it? We're we're working with our regional campuses actually to invent a brand new bachelor's uh, bachelor's degree in engineering technology.
2: Are you uh, working with uh, local manufacturers uh, within the state uh, to help them uh, overcome the skills gap?
1: The answer there is is yes. Um, we don't do anything. Uh, that is not customer-focused and manufacturing-led. Now, sometimes we'll do work that's for six months to a year ahead of them and present it to, to groups of manufacturers, but we, we pretty much have to pressure test everything. Um, so as um, our partners, when it came to this new engineering technology degree, again, we, we start with our good friends at the Ohio Manufacturers Association, um, and we also had... The regional campuses of Ohio State put together advisory groups of of local manufacturers. Um, And we do something different than most university advisory groups, which is really a fancy way of of hustling them for cash. Um, We actually hustle them for opinions.
2: (laughs) Everybody's got opinions. Not everybody has cash. (laughs)
1: Uh, Well, the thing is. (laughs) <laughs> These manufacturers right now, I mean, if we tried doing this in the middle of the Great Recession, they were so busy bailing water, they wouldn't talk to us. But right now, the skill shortage is a constraint. It's, it's binding, and they have a huge self-interest in helping us find solutions.
0: Ed, I noticed one of the points you brought out that you wanted to talk about was manufacturing 5.0. I'm, I'm still back in Industry 4.0 and didn't know the difference between that and the Industrial Revolution, how did we get from one to four?
1: Maybe, maybe you can give us some history and
0: where sure this is all going.
1: Well, the, the reason why we have Industry 4.0, frankly, is, is because the German government couldn't count right. They missed an Industrial Revolution. So whenever we start with the premise that Germans can't count, I think we're winning right there. Uh, but, um, the, the, you know, both the term Internet of Things... And um, Industry 4.0 are marketing taglines. They really don't have any specific content. And, and, in fact, when you ever push somebody on these things, you know, you, they start saying it means everything. And at least with, with IoT, they're now saying there's a cons- consumer and industrial IoT, but still trying to say it means everything. And if a term means everything, it means absolutely nothing. So what we're doing in our work is, first, um, we, we do agree with others that the digitally integrated factory is the next major advance in operations technology. And, you know, it's, it's just a quantum leap from the world of the PLC. Um, so the way in which we um, have figured this out, and this, again, comes from lots of, of conversations with manufacturers um, across the state and, outs- and, and global manufacturers, is, you know, the, the, the digital enterprise has several subsystems that have to be treated separately. Otherwise, you can't figure out how to, how to invest in them strategically, and it will thoroughly screw up senior management. So the ERP is <laughs> not going to go away. The ERP that's um, the... enterprise resource planning system is the financial and control back backbone of any company and that's going to morph to deal with these new industrial um, uh, applications of digital technology then if we look at the at the Internet of Things to me you know if you talk about what does it really mean it's it's using the cloud it's using analytics but it's major contribution I see is, is driving the top line of companies by allowing companies to package and sell information and also just be much more responsive to their customers. And, and if you go beyond that, all of a sudden the programming challenge gets very complicated. And then the third uh, is the operations technology within the factory itself. And that has a culture and a set of applications that's very different from the ERP, very different from outbound sales and data management, um, and it's the place where your supply chain gets integrated with your investments in plant and equipment, and so that's the reason why we talk about manufacturing 5.0 because we're focusing just on those operations technologies, and then how can they interface and, and interact with the ERP, and as well as, as digital fulfillment and sales. Well, I, Ned, I appreciate.
0: I, I appreciate your description of Industry 4.0, because I never could find anybody that could tell me what it meant either. So, Well, a- actually,
1: there, there's a really easy way to figure out what industry, what um, the, particularly the Internet of Things mean, is realize Internet of Things is two letters short of the word idiot. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, when uh, Tim and I started uh, manufacturing talk radio a little bit over five years ago, and i have been in manufacturing for about fifty years and uh in in the metals industry and the skill gap wasn't really known known there wasn't no much known about it from manufacturers all they knew was that hmm we have a lot of people that are retiring, and hmm, mm-hmm. we can't seem to get people to do these jobs so 5 years ago i think from our perspective was really the beginning of the the knowledge of what skill gap is all about and uh, aside from the fact that there has been progress and uh, a lot of the uh, technical schools and universities such as yours uh, is really bringing it to the forefront that being said, uh, yesterday, I heard the number that there are still five hundred thousand open jobs in manufacturing, and uh, if it doesn't get fixed, it's going to be three or four times that within the next decade. So um, and I know that there's a, a, there, the schools and technical schools are turning out a lot of new people and new technology and so on. But it doesn't seem like the numbers going down any.
1: Do you... Well, the I I can't I don't know if the numbers half a million or or whatever for the nation as a whole. It's, we know there's a big number out here, yeah. and the so-called skills gap really is um, a minds and hands gap. <laughs> to just um, be, you know back. Oh, God, I graduated from college in 73, in the late 60s I was in high school. And at that point, um, the shop class, my I, I grew up in a factory town in Connecticut uh, where the brass industry was. And, and, and really at that point, the vocational education system, it degenerated from a skilled um, and honored uh, way of making a living, which we think about post-World War II America, to being the dummies in the thuglet track. And it really was for the folks who weren't going anywhere. And, and oh, by the way, we'll turn you out, and our job is to prove that you can stay in school long enough to get a high school diploma, which kind of indicates that you may actually show up for the job for a job three days in a row. And um, they had some, some basic metal skills, maybe some carpentry skills, and then the company itself would invest in the kid. I mean, that was the relationship between Sikorsky Aircraft and Anaconda Brass and the high schools I, I, I went to. I did go to two high schools. I had freshman year A and B. Um, but then what happened was, as, as we went through you know decades, a couple decades of losing jobs, uh, parents basically if the kid said i want to go to work in a plant gave him a dope slap and the guidance counselors gave him a dope slap and you know now uh, the notion is that uh, a manufacturing job is is a dead-end career and, and has a shelf life shorter than that of a lawyer and accountant which is wrong um and so you know that's when we tried selling manufacturing the same way the milk industry sold milk and it didn't work um instead uh what i think we have to do is is not sell the industry or the sector but sell the job in the occupation itself i mean there are technology jobs out there but there are also jobs for the semi-skilled
2: and today the the compensation for a manufacturing uh, worker is considerably higher uh than it used to be
1: well it's it's in adjusted in inflation adjusted terms um It's higher than non-union manufacturers used to be. If You adjust for inflation, the the unionized positions of 15 years ago probably pay a little bit more. But if you look at what's there for for semi-skilled and unskilled labor or labor in the ever-diminishing retail industry, the the, the wages are very good. And at the top end, you do have jobs that pay anywhere from $60,000 to $120,000 a year.
2: Unless, of course, you're a welder underwater, and then you make 150,000 a year.
1: Um, that 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 is um, a, a a a claustrophobic career if there ever is one, and you deserve any <laughs> penny you can get.
0: <laughs> that's, that's correct, uh, uh, Ned. One of the topics that uh, Blue and I have been talking about since the idea hit this administration. That may have been back in the campaign days about instituting tariffs, and uh, he and I look back as far as George Washington, who said that he felt that maybe some strategic industries ought to be protected, and then you trace it forward in time and find out tariffs never worked for the country that implemented them. They always shot themselves in the foot. Is there an impact in Ohio that you could put your finger on and say, see, this is where trade wars and trade policies are hurting ohio well we
1: have um just released last week a very large report on the impact of we don't call it the trade war we call it the trade skirmish um uh, both in the nation and okay. the state so so if you go to the ohio manufacturing institute's website you can pull down you can pull down the report and um what we decided what we saw, and the data are pretty clear, there hasn't been an increase in steel employment. There's not been a dramatic increase in steel production. There's been a major increase in steel prices. Um, and the, the losses that we expected to see in the supply chain, those that, I mean, in the um, – metal using industries also hasn't taken place. This was a bit this was confusing. So, um, why and and also it hasn't thrown us into a recession. So what the hell's going on here? I think that was the technical term of what we were using. And you know <laughs> it, it it turns out that in twenty eighteen we had this little tax cut and this tax cut generated a deficit of about one and a half trillion dollars, which is a non trivial Number because to get up to tri- trillions, I use all my fingers and start working on toes to do counting. <laughs> um, but the size of, of that stimulus was actually bigger than the size of the stimulus that was used to counteract the Great, the Great Recession. So the reason why we haven't seen a major downturn or, or impact is that the consumer spending throughout 2018 has just been very powerful and it continues into 2019 the second is that the steel and aluminum tariffs really weren't binding until june and as our polling came in on this and cu- coupled with strategic conversations with um, some manufacturers we were drinking with on occasion um what we what we, what happened was pretty clear that the when the tariffs came in in june uh there was an acceleration of imports to avoid the tariffs and oh god the second quarter GDP numbers increased by two percent just just by um, inventory going up and um, the stimulus just just made for such a powerful economy that the companies of the, uh, the customers of the metal users were um, mostly accepting the price increases but uh, and didn't start you know trying to, to figure new ch- cheaper sources of supply and everyone was assuming that this was going to be a short-term thing and we're just going to, you know, pass it along to consumers. And if that doesn't happen, you know, a couple of companies, I you know they ate seventy-seven, eighty dollars 80000 bills in tariff costs, um, and, and it all go away. And we could write it out after a quarter or two, but it, it isn't going away. And the longer it is in place, the more we are seeing OEMs and um, either looking to, to source – in Vietnam or Thailand or India rather than China, or what they're doing is they're they're thinking about importing the product rather than the metal. So the longer this goes on, the larger the impact. The other thing is that if we end up with a full-blown trade war with China, which has been kicked down the road a little bit, and if we do a 232 trade action, that's the national defense protect uh, uh, the steel and aluminum industry applying to the automobile industry, um, that will trick, kick off a trade war and will move us towards recession. The other thing is the stimulus effect of, of the tax cuts gets cut in half next year. So, so it's, it's, we're, we're, we're on a slippery slope.
2: Well, there's another issue that not too many people talk about, and that is what's happening in Europe and their economies and South Mm -hmm. America and their economies, and they're really doing quite poorly, and uh, that's naturally going to affect our exports, uh, which Mm -hmm. only make matters worse for us. And being that we're living in a global economy nowadays, uh, if our partners overseas aren't buying, and uh, somewhere along the line, U.S. consumer confidence is going to uh, dwindle. Uh, mm-hmm. we're, all, we're all in this big boat that's got a hole in the bottom.
1: Well, we also have to – there's one thing that you left out, and that is the value of the dollar has been going up consistently. Well, that's true. So, that's you true. know, taking, taking things piece by piece, Germany's economy is stalled. Um, the EU is dealing with this This, this Whatever I, they call hard, it It's hard to explain <laughs> What the Brexit is Other than a brain fart Which has gone bad um, <laughs> And um, you look at South America you're, you're correct in that Brazil is politically inst- unstable Venezuela is in turmoil And interestingly enough For, for U.S. agriculture uh, South America is experiencing a drought right now So um, that's takes their growth down and China um, is seems to be going it's definitely in a growth it, it, their growth is sl- is slowing down they may not be in a recession but it's starting to look an awful lot like the way the economy looked in 2015 and 2016 where we got close to, to going into recession um, so yeah, global demand is, is weak dollars expensive um, and, and consumer confidence has been dra- moving along what's been fascinating is the fact the business confidence as expressed not with how do they feel about uh, the tax cuts or, or um, the you know loosening of regulation but how are they actually spending their money um, business hasn't has really not been investing outside of inventories over the through the through this past year
2: well that's true and we, we can see that in the uh, forging industry which is what I'm in uh, that uh, we have had uh, uh some significant downturn, and it's only been really in the last couple of weeks that we started notice a, uh, a trickle up uh, but that could be just an anomaly because of inventories
1: yeah it, it it's you know, right now there's not a ton of clarity what's going forward, but if you look at the auto industry, it's clear to me it's clear that December was the cyclical peak. In autos, and you're also seeing uncertainty, particularly among the Detroit-headquartered companies, as to how much production capacity do they actually need as the move towards mobility is taking place. Um, we've seen anything that's in the supply chain to the farming and agriculture industry, um, they're just having a miserable year and again it's it's consumer spending that's keeping the economy moving
2: wasn't it um, in ohio lords ohio that gm closed their plant last week
1: yeah that was lordstown yes
2: yeah lordstown uh, i'm sure that doesn't make uh, lordstown a happy place to be uh, we've heard uh, many people worked for GM uh, being interviewed and, you know, they've been lifelong employees of GM and uh, they're done.
1: Well, it, it, it gets a little complicated. So, Lordstown itself, they've laid off about 1,500 people at the plant. Um, and that was because they were already down to one shift. That at one point, was 4,500 people there. Right. Um, all of the um, GM employees been offered the ability to be transferred to another plant, of which a lot of them seem to be uh, been offered in Fort Wayne, Indiana where the Silverado's made. Where the pain is is that Lordstown was a big, is a big facility, and Magna and a couple other companies actually had production sites inside that plant. Those folks don't have the same transfer rights that the UAW workers have. Um, and um, what uh, Mary Barras it did with her announcement of the fall where she said that um, the uh, three the, the, the old Pole Town plant in Michigan, Lordstown in Ohio, and the Oshawa plant in Ontario are being closed. She was pretty clear that, that, that GM thinks there's too much capacity in their system for what their market share looks like going forward.
2: So that seems to be where the the direction it's going. You know, it's like it's like the days of the horseshoes and the and the uh, and the horse buggy. You know, cars came along and there weren't many horses being used. Uh, yeah, well,
1: and- but the but there are a couple other things going on with with the Lordstown. E- each of those plant has a slightly different story. Oshawa, it was just the dumb plant. Most of, most of their, their, their cars themselves, if you think about the trucks the, that were produced up there, they produced the old version of the Silverado, and, and the exterior itself was assembled in Indiana and shipped to um, Ontario, which is, makes no financial sense. Um, in Lordstown case, the plant was optimized for small, lightweight sedans with an inflexible assembly line, And so if a new set of models had to go in there or they were to build flexibility into that line, the entire assembly line had to be replaced. And that's what made that um, economically unfeasible. And I I don't know the the story behind the Town plant other than it's got a bunch of sedans in there. Um, You could argue that the Chevy Blazer should have been made in the United States rather than Mexico, but that plant was designed when um, those sedans were selling
2: and and now if your if your vehicle isn't nine feet tall you don't they don't want them.
1: Well, <laughs> the, the, the small SUVs are selling well. It just happens that the best rated small SUVs are by Subaru, Honda, and Toyota.
2: Hmm.
1: Right. Right. And Ned, and uh, and the, the,
0: yes. I'd like you to give our listeners a kind of an overview of the ohio manufacturing institute we've mentioned it a couple of times but mm-hmm. i don't think we've drilled down in depth uh, other than you mentioning it's a think tank within the university i wonder if you could kind of give our listeners an idea of what does omi do who does it serve
1: well uh, it, it's um... it there are a cut catherine kelly is the director of omi and she really is the, the outreach and social glue of the organization. By social glue, it means that she goes out, and she, she um, works with the Ohio Manufacturers Association, she's the one who goes and deals with regional workforce groups, um, and um, also is the one that's implementing, um, help, helping the regional campuses implement the um, the new engineering technology degree program. So she's the one who really brokers between demand on the outside and the resources within the university um, my job is I work on public policy issues um, that have an economic content to them so I've been doing a lot of work on electricity deregulation and a ton of work on, on manufacturing 4.0. and then at the request of um, the Carnegie Endowment for Peace asked me to, to look at how trade affects Ohio and since that's a manufacturing issue that fell within our brief. Um, then we've got um, consulting a couple public policy consultants, and then Fran Stewart, um, she, another PhD. She's her specialty is on the occupation on manufacturing occupations and the skill content within those occupations. And then if other things come up, we can dip into the rest of the university with either on the engineering side, where we've got some terrific material science scientists working with us, or on the public policy side, where there's a good group of economists working with us. Do you work with uh, the National Association of
2: Manufacturers by any chance?
1: Well, we, we work not directly for NAM itself. We work very closely with their Ohio affiliate, the Ohio Manufacturers Association, um, I think that I, I, I sit on their energy committee, and I, Catherine sits on their government relations committee, um, and everything we do with workforce, they're, they're our partner on everything in workforce. And when it comes to the fight to preserve competitive electricity generating generation markets, um, OMI is basically a, a, a non-paying paying client because we volunteer our activities there. I do want to give Catherine
0: Kelly uh, kudos and credit for actually discovering us and reaching out to Manufacturing Talk Radio, but uh, not the other way around. So uh, that's how this relationship got started, Ned, was that uh, Catherine sent us a note and said, hey, can we work together? And we were thrilled to receive it.
1: Well, and she's, she has a terrific stack of podcasts. And awful. It's funny, through the, through the podcasting that she does, and I'm sure it's happening with you two folks, those conversations give us a lot of insight into what's happening ha- happening in manufacturing America.
2: Well, I know that Tim and I have learned a lot in the last five and a half years. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> and the whole, yeah, of that, of course, course. the whole idea, of course, is that uh, we look to pass it on uh, to all those that uh, we can round up in our corral, and we've had uh, over a million downloads of our shows in the last... Uh, Uh, five years. We've actually started a couple of other podcasts, again, all manufacturing related. Uh, Do you have any specific programs uh, at uh, Omai regarding uh, women in the workforce?
1: We we don't have a specific program that way. Just we're very, very sensitive and thoughtful about making certain that 52% of the population is more than 52% of the solution. Right. Well, well put, well put.
2: Yeah, you, you'll uh, get kudos from your wife tonight. Uh,
1: well, I mean, it's, uh, that, that's, you know, just because I'm cooking, so it's all right.
0: <laughs> well, Ned, as we wrap up this segment, uh, I'm just going to throw it open to you to share anything you'd like to share uh, with the audience on, on something related to the topics we've been talking about today.
1: Well, I think the thing that's... Cl- top of mind with me is trying to to dealing well let me me, obviously i'm stuttering because i'm trying to make this thing sensible and it's hard i'm an academic um the the most important (laughs) thing to me is dealing with the small to mid-sized manufacturing leader um right now they have a difficult set of choices or, or difficult set of opportunities because they're working so hard, particularly on the workforce issues, they're working more inside their business than they've been for, forever. And this really is a time for those folks that got to start making certain they have the ability to work on their business itself um, and and particularly dealing with How are they going to deal with with the next generation of lean and this is going to be the operations technologies that are digitally integrated and how do you do it in a way that you can afford to invest in it how do you finance it Um, and how do you take a bunch of small smaller projects on the shop floor itself so they aggregate to a manufacturing technology because everything we're looking at Says that there are awful lot of companies lost lean going coming out of the, the Great Recession um, that's the cheapest way to find investment capital uh, we're seeing a lot of manufacturers that are manufacturing 3.0 man, um, uh, operating technologies meaning they don't even have PLCs working um, mo- all manufacturers now are at 4.0 uh, technology and they and to survive they're going to have to get up to 5.0 and to do that, uh, it really means that you have to, the, the, the owner and the operator of, of the small to mid sized companies really have to start thinking hard about how they're going to make that transition, and how they're going to finance it.
2: Well, we have to have an, a, a, certainly an economy that requires the product, and uh, marketing plays a big role in that.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and I think that it's going to happen. Is that it's going to be the OEMs are going to drive a lot of this down their supply chain, in which case those companies can be victims as well as survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, when we talked to um, uh, GE Aircraft, you know, the, en- the engine division of GE, they, they were telling us that they're 3D printing large parts of their engines. And in, in so doing, their parts counts have gone down by a third. Well, that means that there's some something got sh- shaken out of that supply chain. Um, and um, we're seeing 3-D printing now uh, being able to print pretty substantial what used to be sub-assemblies. And the other thing that I'm looking forward to with 3-D printing is when we can 3-D print a die. That's when a large chunk of the competitive advantage with China starts to melt uh, because its intricate dies Once them – you go there to get a dye made, they essentially own, own the manufacturing of the product. Right.
0: Very true. Well, Ned, we certainly appreciate having you on Manufacturing Talk Radio. I just want to share with you and our listeners something that may be of interest to you and them, and that comes out of our episode 246 with Ultra Consultants. And in a discussion with me after an earlier episode they did with us, they were kind enough to put together... The top ERP systems by organization type and size called What's the Best Fit? It's an infographic that appears on our website. Uh, That's, again, episode episode 246. You might want to take a look at it because they really do identify all of the ERPs that are out there for the small business, the mid-sized business, the enterprise size business. So that was and the reason I asked them to do it. Because to me, as a, if I'm a small manufacturer, I'm confused. Right. I don't know what
1: I don't know which one to pick. Um,
0: these folks have implemented a whole bunch of them. So I just wanted to share that with you.
1: Oh, that's that's helpful. We'll we'll be looking at it because it's our our goal is by uh, by the start of the fall to be able to have some guidance to help. Uh, manufacturers think, think their way through the field of nomenclature and actually um, thinking about capital investment rather than marketing taglines given to you by desperate Germans.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, and we look forward to having you or Catherine on our show in the future to talk about OMI or what you're doing, Ned, with Ohio State University. Again, thanks for joining us.
1: Uh, you're welcome. It's been a fun conversation.
2: Thank you much, and we'll be talking again.
0: And we appreciate having Ned Hill on uh, Manufacturing Talk Radio, who's professor of economic development at the Ohio State University, great university out in the Midwest in this great state of Ohio. And he's also working with the Ohio Manufacturing Institute and the Ohio Manufacturers Association. So, Lou, an interesting conversation, and again, a great guest on Manufacturing Talk Radio.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe we'll have to get them to start thinking about women in in, in regards to uh, what they're doing. Uh, and then we can have them on WHAM, Women and Manufacturing.
0: Yes. Our sister show is, uh, is doing very well. And just to remind all of our listeners, we have built a library of information. That's why I referred to episode two forty six today. All of those have been numbered so they're easier to find and refer people to. And that's that's been the whole point of it, Lou, since we created it, it was a referral library for manufacturers.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we're up to three hundred and somebody help me out here. Engineer three oh eight. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Tim, that
0: sounds like a wrap. Yeah, it does. And our sister show is at womenandmfg.com. So come and join us and listen to these, plus Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman and new shows that we're launching. And, again, thanks for listening to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com.